Oh, we do have a privilege uh, to have uh, Nick and Ruth Ripkin here with us, and many of you here last night, and, and saw the movie that captured uh, uh, some of the stories that they've been privileged uh, to be a part of, and some of the things that God has been teaching them. They have uh, served uh, us uh, as Southern Baptists, served the kingdom of God through our international mission board for many years, or some bio information about that uh, in the worship folder, but uh, in recent years, uh, a lot of the folks has been helping all of us uh, to learn uh, from brothers and sisters in Christ uh, around the world, uh, particularly uh, the persecuted church and, uh, and believers undergoing uh, persecution. And so I know that your heart's going to be challenged. And so uh, as we welcome uh, Nick uh, to the, the pulpit, I'm just going to ask you just to even prepare yourself and say, God, help me not to miss what it is you want to say to me this morning. Would you join me this morning in welcoming uh, uh, Nick and Ruth Ripkin. Thank you, Pastor. Good morning, church. It's just uh, an unusual joy to be with you today, and um, Ruth and I are in 35 years with the International Mission Board, and I don't know how that is possible because I feel like I'm 30 years old, but uh, I guess that's really, really good. But what I'd like to, to do with you this morning is have you look at, at Matthew 10 with me. And I just hope you have your Bibles with you, uh, paper, electronic, however, however you do. One of the fascinating things we found about believers in persecution, and I really, I really want to have a sea change about how you think about your brothers and sisters around the world. Uh, one of the things that we've noticed quite all over the world is a lot of times they don't have access to the written Word of God. And normally, if you look from Genesis to the book of Acts, they have memorized, they, I mean, it's in their heart, it's in their head, they have memorized 70% uh, of the stories of the Bible. That, that's, that's the normal Christianity we meet, 70% uh, of the world's Christians who actually practice their faith. We're not talking about those who have yet to tell any about, anyone about Christ themselves, but practicing their faith in the hardest places on the planet. Seventy percent live in environments of persecution. And so they are the ones who represent for us normal Christianity. Can you imagine? And this is on you, dads and moms. This is on us, and sadly, that DNA that the persecuted churches poured into Ruth and I, I wish I had 30, 40 years ago, uh, be, because they, they can reproduce 70% of the stories by memory. There were three charismatic pastors who had house churches all over uh, a, a, a wide range of places in and around uh, uh, Moscow, thousand house churches. But they do their security so tight that not only could the bad guys not find them, other Christians couldn't find them. We've really learned a lesson about that. You got to let your, your security down enough that other Christians can find you otherwise. Everybody feels like Elijah in the cave. 
And they brought 700. I would have never advised this anywhere in the world of persecution for seven days. You don't do that either. All these young people have never touched a Bible, never held their own book. Brought them into Moscow just so they could see all the things that God was doing because house churches usually would be like me, two of my brothers, their wives. And so you can go to church for 10 or 15 years with your aunt and uncles and your ugly cousins. That gets old in a hurry. So they just want them, everybody to meet everybody. All three pastors went to prison for three years because they had that meeting. Too many people for too long in one place. Without planning, they challenged those 700 young people. See how much of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, the Gospels, they could recreate by memory, rem remembering that they never had a Bible that they had touched. And they recreated Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they had six mistakes when they finished. That's the bar of Christianity. And, and, and because oftentimes it comes so easily packaged to us, we'll set the bar of Christianity so low when, when serving Jesus here and around the world, that normal Christianity is in the heavens, and you won't be what Jesus wants you to be until you come into His presence. 700 young people, 18 to 30, unmarried, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John with six mistakes. Guess what? When they come and arrest you and take you off to prison in China, they don't let you take your Bible with you. You don't get to say, hey, uh, bad guy, can I have my praise team come meet you, come, come visit me? By the way, by the way, it is so common if your pastor or one of your deacons is arrested and put in jail, let's just say uh, elders or deacons, your pastor is arrested, and you go visit him like the Bible commands. And, and uh, they, uh, they're doing that process of letting you in to do the visit, and they say to you, you know that man's in prison because he believes in that Jesus, he's that Christian. And you'll respond, yes, I know that. And then they turn to you and say, are you one of those Christians? Well, it's time to put on your big boy pants. Because if you say yes, they put you in the cell with him. That gives a whole new meaning to prison ministry, doesn't it? You see, where Ruth and I have lived for most of the 35 years overseas, you are as likely to be in prison for being good as you would be for being bad. You see, we are from a culture uh, that we believe people are in jail because they've done wicked things. But in where we're from, you are more likely to be put in jail and be beaten and tortured severely because you are a godly man or woman. And this is what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 10. 
He's sending out the 12. He's letting them get their feet wet. He said, go to the Jews. Don't go to the Gentiles. Well, that seems to be quite a racist statement. But Jesus knew what he was doing. He was saying, go to your neighbors. Go to your friends. Go to the next village. Go where you have extended family. Tell them about the coming, coming kingdom of God. And you get, guess what? You get to make your mistakes at home among your own people, your own family, your own brothers and sisters, so that when you get to Somalia, you might have a clue what you're doing. And we didn't. You see, when we went to college and seminary and got a, a bachelor's, master's, and doctorate, almost everything that was poured into us taught us how to be sheep among the sheep. And Jesus said to those who would listen, you want to know why I've come? I've come to seek and to save those who are lost. And so when you're looking at the purpose for your small group, when you're looking for your purpose as a worship team, when you're looking for your purpose in your house as a believer with your children, your spouse, or as a single around the table with God's people, you need to check your heart weekly and say, why has God poured His Holy Spirit into me? Is it just to get me into heaven? No. It's so that you can seek and save those who are lost. And the problem that we have, if we do that mostly among the sheep, when you cross the border into Somalia, where the wolves are in the majority, and they're not part-time wolves, they ate our lunch. Folks, within six months of being in Somalia, we, had, uh, we were feeding 50,000 people a day. There was about eight of us doing mobile medical clinics with some of the most godly nurses in the Baptist world. My goodness, how I love these people. We were resettling refugees, mobile medical clinics. We were having streams of people coming to the compound where we all live together uh, to treat every need that you can imagine. And seeing the horror of Somalia to go into this camp and this camp and this tenant place, and, and they would beg us before food for burial cloth because we average burying uh, 20 children a day for the first six months there. Uh, I can't... Um, I can't begin, you know what, I can. I can describe to you exactly what Somalia was like. Go read the Old Testament. Go read the Old Testament. When, when, when God's son is not shared, is not testified to, is not preached and and I have a, a broader meaning of that word. When, when Jesus is absent from a people group for 2,000 years, you get what we have in places like Somalia. We were one mile away that horrible day when that helicopter was shot out of the sky. But folks, this is a result of for 2,000 years, 10 
million people having no access to the kingdom of God. I am not making an excuse for wickedness, but this is what happens when we keep Jesus to ourselves. Oh, and Jesus said, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. And we've edited our Bible so much that when Jesus says, and I am going to allow you to be arrested by the sacred and the secular authorities, and they're going to do bad things to you, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10. But don't worry, I'm going to give you the words to say. In other words, he couldn't give you the words to say unless he's right there with you. And in chapter 11, which is my focus this morning, Jesus uh, uh, sees it put in practice. One of the closest persons he has in his life. The nearest person to a pastor that Jesus ever had. John the Baptist, who baptized him. Who said, I'm unworthy to untie his sandal. Who said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Who recognized, announced, prepared the way for the Messiah and has done everything right among his own people. You see, you see, in Jerusalem, the altar had become hidden and only one man for the most part, could access that altar at just very seldom times of the year. The rest of the time, nobody had access to the altar of God. And you know what? You can go out to the Jordan River. You can wear camel-haired clothing. Have you all ever been around a camel? John the Baptist did not have access to deodorant, and the clothes he wear, you can know when he's about two miles away, I promise you, if the wind is blowing in the right direction. He's eating locusts. Those little legs get stuck in your teeth. Have you ever tried them? It's a good source of protein, but you can dip a rock in honey and, and be able probably to get that down. Here's his diet. Here's his dress. Here, here is a man that has calluses on his feet. He has calluses on his hands. He has calluses on his heart. He is so tough, he can look at his own religious leaders and call them a bunch of snakes. And because John had crossed the street, to his own people with the coming kingdom of God when Herod took Herod who thought himself a god. See, Ruth and I also have lived in a lot of countries where they have been presidents for life. It's just a euphemism for a dictator. And when Caesar is Lord, there's no room for Jesus to be Lord. I can go on and on just about that subject alone, but John had so represented the coming kingdom of God among his own people that when Herod took his brother's wife into his bedroom, John the Baptist being consistent with the prophet that he'd been all along, he said to Herod, you may think you are something, but I'm telling you, you will not escape the coming kingdom of God, and you will be under the judgment of God. And Herod had this 
funky relationship with John. But because of, you know the story, uh, two women conspired and had John arrested. And the story just builds from the time he's in his mother's womb to preparing the way for Jesus and baptizing in the wilderness and baptizing Jesus himself and hearing the voice of God saying, this is my son. John heard that. John was there. And now he's in prison. And folks, he's ours. Days at the most from having the axe take his head off of his body. And reading the Old Testament as an 18-year, well, what I did at 18 years of age, I found Jesus in a Kraft Foods cheese factory. It was uh, an inescapable uh, experience with Jesus. Inescapable. I was working nights my last 12, 13 weeks of high school. And, uh, uh, and just, uh, you know, when you experience Christ, you can't help but taking him to others. And from an early age, that has been John's experience. Probably unlike anybody other than Jesus' mother, John knew Jesus. And now he's in prison. And I'm telling you folks, after reading about Daniel and the fiery furnace to those three young men, and Isaiah, and, and all those others, I expected John. I expected John, the nearest thing to an Old Testament prophet in the New Testament, that when Herod th threatened him with death, when they told him, when that jailer told him what was going to happen to him, I expected John to say, bring it on. Do whatever you have to do. I have lived my life for the kingdom of God, and I will die with the kingdom of God's praises on my lips in this dialogue. You see, the longer you're in Christianity, the more you just read over this stuff. The more you read your own culture into this stuff, the more you lose the gritty and the grime and the roughness of it is taking the kingdom of God to the tough places where it's not dressed up and sanitized and and, and every hair's in place. And, and, and here's John with his back literally against the wall in this prison cell. And he questions who Jesus is. I was shocked to the core of my being. John sent, hearing what Jesus was doing in Matthew 11, sent John, sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the Messiah or do we wait for somebody else? I, I couldn't believe that. I couldn't accept that. I could not understand that. Here is the toughest man on the planet in regard to the kingdom of God, and he doubted. As much as he could, he ran away. As much as he could, he questioned in the depths of his heart, Jesus, are you the one? Or I, you know, he, he says in here, uh, 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 or do we wait for somebody else? John knew he didn't have time to wait for somebody else. He was going to die. And he wants to know, am I going to die for the Son of God, or am I going to die for a fairy tale? Uh, that's, that's a big distinction. Now, don't do this often. 
And you'll see why. You'll understand why. Ruth and I were in South Africa with three boys, loving life, but living life under apartheid. Uh, it was a PhD in, in racism. And, uh, and God had to take this redneck uh, kid from Kentucky and take him to that part of the world and let me make me deal uh, with racial issues that I grew up with. And God began to trouble our hearts, and Ruth and I did a very foolish thing, but I recommend this foolish thing for the, I don't know how many times we read the book of Acts together, and I wrote on the piece of paper the word missionary. No one in all these years that we had been around had to find this is what a missionary does. Here's where they go. Here's what they do. And I wrote that on a piece of paper. And this sweet woman and I read that carefully together. And at the end of those weeks, I wrote down for her and for me that the, the, you know, the word missionary doesn't appear in the Bible, but the concept is there that the, a missionary goes and tells people about Jesus who have little or no access to the kingdom of God. And we picked up, we had a crank telephone. If you've ever had those, you know, this is one of those missionary stories, guys, where you walk uphill, you know, uh, everywhere you go. And we got on that crank telephone and called leadership in Nairobi and said, we've got to go to Somalia or Sudan where people have little or no chance to hear. And two months later, we were in Nairobi. And two months after that, three months after that, I'm making my first trips into Somalia. Here's another secret about the kingdom of God. They told us it'd take three to five years to get into Somalia at the height of the civil war and famine. God does not open doors unless you're there to walk through them. But when you are obedient to go to what looks like closed doors, you're going to find them as wide as barn doors. And we got in there in a matter of months where they said it would take three to five years. And, and in a matter of months, we were doing some of the things that I described to you. But before that happened, as Ruth and I were reading the book of Acts, uh, Baptists overseas love to have meetings just like you all do around here, these places. And, and I drew, flew to Nairobi. Long story short, one of our godly leaders said, Nick, I can get you into a refugee camp down on the border of, of Mombasa and the Red Sea, 10 uh, it was 10,000, wasn't it, Mama? 10,000 Somalis. These were the educated. These were the wealthy. These were the doctors and lawyers and politicians and leaders in the military and a lot of university students who had the money to pay the bribes to get on a ship that was left stranded in Mombasa Harbor for three or four months until the United Nations could build this big new modern refugee camp out in the bush. And this brother said, Nick, I can get you in there because of projects you've done in other places in the world. And he said, uh, I hear you're thinking about taking your wife and kids and working with the Somalis. Have you ever met one? No. Have you ever met a Muslim? I said, no. He said, well, maybe you want to meet one or two before you move your family all these thousands of miles. And he got me in that refugee camp. And he said to me as I was leaving the office, Nick, 
Listen to me. I know what you're like. Now, you know when somebody says that, whatever comes after that's not going to be very pretty. He said, I want you to go there and keep your mouth closed. I wonder who he'd been talking to. <laughs> not you. And, uh, and, and he said, I just want you to listen. Rub up against it. I want you to smell it and taste it and be with these Muslim people, these Somalis, and see, is the Holy Spirit in there? And, and I'm just saying, give me thy ticket and let me go. And he's holding on to me and, and telling me and just commanding me, be quiet, listen, learn, sense what the Holy Spirit is saying. And I went to Mombasa and got me a taxi and went up to that refugee camp, and it has doors, uh, big old gates at the front about as wide as this back wall. Only way in there, chain link fence 10 to 12 feet high with razor wire all around it. And when I walked in the gate, I said, oh, shoot, I'm too late. Some Christians got there before me. I hate that. You know, we like to be first in a lot of places. You know how I could tell? Some, I found out later on who it was. Some really well-intentioned short-term volunteers thought what Somali uh, uh, in the Somalis in that refugee camp needed the most uh, were Somali Bibles, and they brought 10,000 Somali Bibles and gave them to all of those refugees. Sound good, doesn't it? Oh, the Somalis were so happy. It was rainy season. And they took those Bibles and made sidewalks out of them. And they made sure to keep a stack of them for every one of the latrines. Um, I don't think that's good use of the Word of God. And I would walk in the mud around those sidewalks of Bibles and Somalis would laugh at me and make fun of me because I wouldn't walk on dry land. You know, I met a guy named Abdulaziz, university student, whose who's, uh, English is better than my Kentucky English. If our sons were to introduce me to you, they would say, uh, this is Nick, uh, our father. Uh, he had to take English as a second language in college. <laughs> That's a lie. I didn't have to do that to seminary college, everybody spoke the same way I did, all right? And so, I'm, uh, uh, Abdi is taking me around, introducing me to this political leader, to this university professor, to this politician, to this military people, and I'm, I'm just eating this up. I'm saying, wow, I can do this stuff. Wow, these doors are all open to me. Wow, I don't know why these people are so spoken ill of, and, and, and see, I'm going to be there for two weeks. And he's told me, keep your little mouth, mm, your big mouth, mm, like this. After three days, my arrogance knows no bounds. And I said to God, I got this figured out. I got this, Lord. So I turned to Abdi. I said, Abdi, do you know my friend Jesus? And Abdi went nuts. He began to wave his arms. He began to shout, and men started running toward him, looking like an out-of-control mob. And, and Abdi is yelling stuff in Somali that I had no clue what it was those early days. And that crowd of 30, 40 men gathered around me, began to push me back into that chain-link fence, and I could feel it making impressions in my back. And all I could hear is them yelling, Nick. 
Nick here and Nick there and Jesus here and Jesus there. And they're grabbing each other by the shirt front and they're grabbing each other by the beard and, and arms are flying and, 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 and everything's, you know, going on. And I knew nothing of the language. I did not know at that time this is normal Somali behavior. You see, Kenyans and Sub-Saharan Africans are, Africans are some of the most godly, gracious, responsive people. Uh, they will borrow money, literally, to feed us. Uh, they're like my wife's family. Somalis are like my family. You know, we're loud, we're in your face, we're in your space. But my goodness, I thought, why didn't I keep my mouth shut? I'm not going to get out of here. They're looking at me with just hatred in their eyes. It's what I saw, what I interpreted, and I'm usually pretty good at this stuff. And they're yelling my name, and they're yelling Jesus' name, and they're pushing, and they're shoving. And this goes on for 25 minutes, and I just said, oh, God, oh, Lord, somehow Ruth doesn't even know I'm on this trip. She does not have no clue I'm in this camp. We did all those years in Somalia without a single cell phone. They didn't exist, folks. That woman has such faith. She put me on a plane. I'm gone from two to six weeks, and she prayed me in there. She prayed me while I'm there, and she prayed us out of there. It was a, a, a here's a commercial. Here's a commercial. What's, 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 What's the hardest task in Christianity? Dying on a cross or sending your only son to die on a cross? Which is the toughest? You see, what Ruth and I didn't know in those days, but we were to learn, that going as sheep among the wolves is much harder than sending those you love to be sheep among the wolves. In that crucifixion story, you have both the God, the Father who sends, and the Son who dies. But church, listen to me. If you will understand that sending people to every peoples on this planet, if you really get so involved with sending your sons and daughters, your second career people, your singles and your marriage, if you really get into sending people to the ends of the earth, to the Somalis, to the Afghanistans, to the Pakistans, the Syria, the Chinas, the India, the places that we've come to know and to love, if you really will fall in love with sending, that's the hardest job on this planet. I would rather go to Somalia for a thousand times than have my boys go in there for one time. Church, you have the hardest task if you choose to do it. And these Somalis are near riot stage. And I said, God, let Ruth know that it was here I died. And sometime in the future, let her and the boys come here and just be able to pray over the spot where uh, their father and husband was killed. I knew that was the outcome of that experience. And they fought, 
and they argued and then they opened up around me and faced me as a mob and Abdi came up to me and said to me as harsh as he could right here in my face he said Dr. Nick we don't know your friend Jesus but Mahmoud thinks he's heard about him and thinks he lives in that refugee camp up the road so if you'll go out the gate and turn left and go one mile up to the next refugee camp and stop at the gate and ask for Jesus uh, we think that you that you'll find him there and I said thank you very much and I ran out that gate and I took a right and got me a taxi and I went to Mombasa and I got me a plane and I flew to Nairobi. I didn't say a thing to anybody. I got me a plane to South Africa and I flew home and I, and I said to God uh, when I got on that plane, God, if you want these people, you can have them. But when I sat down in that taxi with that Kenyan driver, I was so ashamed. My dad was a carpenter and a farmer, a bricklayer. You talk about calluses. That man didn't have fingerprints rubbed off by laying so many brick. And uh, we, us boys, were taught to work. And, but my, my father never allowed and never raised his six boys to run away. I'm telling you, church, the first time when I thought that my faith was going to cost me my life and all the sermons that I preached and all the dreams that I had and all the boasts that I'd made about going to Somalia, I ran away. At 2 o'clock in the morning on a South African jet flying from Nairobi back to Johannesburg, I said to God, I'm so ashamed. I can't go home and tell Ruth what I've done. I can't go home and tell our boys that we're not going to pack, we're going to unpack. I can't tell. I can't look at three boys, one of them born uh, on the mission field, that their father was so such a spiritual coward that he ran away the first time that any real pressure was put on his faith. I can't look my wife and boys in the eyes and I said, God, if you'll just give me a second chance, I'll promise you I won't run away again. And then I thought, this sounds a little bit wacky, but I thought, Lord, tell John the Baptist I'm sorry for criticizing him. Because I was to find out, as Ruth and I eventually went to 72 countries, and we've now sat with 700 believers in persecution, every one of them gives up. At some point or another, they can no longer, like Jesus, carry their cross by themselves by any longer. Giving up 
denying your faith. The most common denial of faith has been the song sung by everybody in this room. The most common denial of faith is having opportunity to share who Jesus is, not who the pastor is, not what the church is, not the youth program, have an opportunity to say, this is the Jesus I believe in, and have that chance and not take it is the most common denial on the planet. But every believer comes to that time where they sit, they lie down, they look at heaven, and they say, I'm done. Oh, praise God that he's not only the Lord and Savior of my soul, but for everybody in this room that has embarrassed themselves, embarrassed their God, falling short of what we want to be, that God gives us another chance and sends us out time and time and time again. And Jesus says to John the Baptist, when John asked, are you the one or do we wait for somebody else? Jesus said, you go back to John and tell him this. Now let's do a mental test right now. If somebody was to ask you tomorrow, just off the cuff, tell me how to prove that Jesus is who he says he is, what would you say about Jesus? Now, if you've been to the seminary like we have, you're going to have some big old words that you're going to use. You might have smaller words like alpha and omega, but you're going to have such big descriptions, such lofty uh, 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 a definition of what it means to be in Christ and, and what it means for him to be the Messiah but Jesus just flips it on us. And he says, you go back and tell John what you hear and see. Listen to me, church. That in the marketplace, the blind are seeing, the deaf are hearing, the lame are walking, the lepers are being cleansed, that the dead are being raised, and that the gospel may God forgive us, is being preached to the poorest of the poor. I am leaving you with this thought. That the authenticity of, the, of Jesus Christ today is not proven by the, the, the veracity of the message the, the, the professionalism and the joy of the singing and worship are the attendance in the body of Christ. To the, Jesus himself says, you want to know if I am who I say I am, then you go with me. We don't take him. We go with him to the marketplaces of life, to the schools, to the jobs, to the clubs, to the restaurant, and it is in the marketplace as you pray for people, as you pray for their healing in their homes. It is in the marketplace as you break bread. Most Muslims come to Jesus over shared meals in their homes with us, 
and in our homes with them. The quickest way to lead Muslims to Christ in America, it doesn't change when they get here, is by welcome, welcoming them to your country, asking them where they are from, sharing a bit of your testimony. It takes us 30 minutes anywhere in the Islamic world to be asked by Muslims to come to their home for a meal. Let me say that again. It takes us 30 minutes, the first time we ever meet a Muslim, to be invited to their home for a meal. It's what they do. It's in their culture. It's ingrained in their very DNA. And most of them in our world for 10, 15, 20, 30 years, no one has ever said to them, welcome to America. Jesus was so criticized for breaking bread, sharing meals with sinners and publicans. And what I'm asking you is to go out and be criticized for doing the same. I ran away. International Mission Board doesn't pay me to tell you that. And that's not what you expect missionaries to come and say to you, but you need to hear that. I was terrified. I ran away. But when I went across the street and got on the next airplane and flew back into that country that is the most Old Testament place I've ever been, I went under God's power not my inquisitiveness, not my, oh, I love to take risk is. I went under the authority, the power of the direction of Almighty God and Ruth and I and three boys going in and out for eight years. We stayed. And that's because of who Jesus is and not because of anything that's in Ruth or Nick. Hear the words of God. I have come to seek and to save those who are lost. Thus saith the Lord, who are you seeking today? Oh, mighty God, you know my heart, and you know that I don't deal, Lord, in guilt. I don't practice shaming people. You know in my heart, Lord, I want my brothers and sisters here to have the joy, the absolutely unbridled, joy-filled heart that explodes with your presence when we see others come to you as their Lord and Savior. Father, let us not transfer this joy to the clergy or to the missionary. Lord, give us, give us the authority and the power and your presence to cross that street, go into that job, go to school, and go in the marketplace 
and authenticate that Jesus is Lord by what we partner with him in doing outside the walls of this building. Oh, Jesus, I pray, let it be. Oh, Lord, let it be. We love you. Amen. As we continue just to listen to the Lord, I'm just going to ask you just to take these next few moments and, and just maybe begin to just sit before the Lord and, and maybe even as, as Nick was sharing, just in your mind, you thought of that moment when maybe you had opportunity uh, to share Christ. And for all of the reasons that we hesitate, uh, that we draw back, you, you, you did. And maybe you just need to, to, to sit with that moment for a moment and just allow, allow God's Spirit just to, to speak out of that. And to use that not as a point to beat ourselves up, but just a recognition that we need, we need Him. What He's called us to is so much greater than who we are without Him. And yet in these moments, Let us hear God's call anew and afresh. That God does want to use ordinary men and women, students, children, right where they live, where they go to school, where they work, where they play, where they hang out. Just to say to God anew and afresh, God, I'm available. Can't do it on my own, but I can join you. And maybe as you're here this morning, as you think about the picture we're trying to hold before us as a church fellowship that we're an aircraft carrier and that we send forth one another into the world perhaps for some in this room right here right now it's about saying God I'm willing I'm willing to go where Christ is not known I'm willing to go to the places that <laughs> From a sheerly human perspective, it, it seems unsafe. It seems that the wolves outnumber the sheep. Maybe even for some in this room this morning, it's, it's about saying, Father, not just I'm willing. But God, God, I have been entrusted by you with children. For some of us in the room, grandchildren. 
Father, we don't want to be a barrier to them following you, finding the joy and purpose and fulfillment that comes from being right where you want them to be. And so, Father, we're willing to be made willing to release them to your calling, to release them to your mission. 